Well, hello and welcome to the Impact Junkie Show live. Hi, everybody. This is Philip Harding, and we are making it happen here. We are loving people, going places, and changing lives. I'm so glad you could join us today. We're going to be bringing you world leaders. That's right, ambassadors, military heroes, which you're going to hear from in just a second, investors, entrepreneurs all around the world hooked on solving the biggest, hairiest, most audacious problems in the world, but not just how they did it but how you can too, and how you can be the solution to the world's biggest, hairiest, most audacious problems. So one of the things, so what we're gonna dig into here for next few minutes is Mason's story. And we have this Impact Junkie framework. So we had the, the Impact Junkie course last Saturday and we had entrepreneurs and adventurous doers and investors from all around the world. We had Australia, United Arab Emirates, Belize, Guatemala, Jamaica, Mexico, did I say Honduras and United States, a lot from across the United States and many are joining us live on the Zoom right now and we're going to have a Q&A after we have a little chat with Mason. But uh, we focus on this framework of love people, go places, change lives. Maybe you've heard about this. We, we say it a lot and you've probably seen it. Love people, go places, change lives. Well, it's also our secret, uh, sort of our secret recipe for how to solve these big, hairy, audacious problems in the world. So I'm so excited and honored to bring on an American hero, Mason McDonald, and he's going to share with you that first part. Before we say love people and, and understand the, the problems and go in with empathy, and before we can go places and launch things and test it in the market, and before we can change lives and scale the movement, it starts with you and really understanding your journey and the story that you're going through and connecting the dots in your life journey to help you identify what big, hairy, audacious problem, what BHAP you're meant to solve, right? That big, hairy, audacious problem. And that's where we start. What are you meant to solve? And so you're gonna hear today an amazing story from an army ranger, special ops, helicopter pilot, Purple Heart. We've done, we've done some Impact Junkie military uh, events and we had a bunch of Impact Junkie military both active and retired veterans on the, that's actually joining our courses and going through this framework live with us as well. You're gonna hear more about that. And Mason got me into an Apache helicopter and uh, all kinds of fun things. And he, we, we kind of joke a little bit and, and you're gonna hear some of, of Mason's story and also his wife, uh, Beth, who many of you know, who has an awesome story and we'll say for another show, another time, um, to dig into her story as well, which is so rich and she's helping so many other people. But um, we want to open up with your story, Mason. And one of the exercises, as you know, is the chapters of your life exercise. And this is one of the things we go through at the very beginning. Before you dig into solving problems and start putting band-aids or temporary solutions on what, you know, instead of bringing sustainable solutions and all that, first it needs to be rooted in your personal passion, purpose, and calling. And what are you meant to solve? What are you called to solve? And what are you meant to do? And so Mason, if you could just kind of share with us sort of your, the chapters of your life and your story, and, and then we'll kind of dig into it there and carry on. Philip, thanks again for having me. Thrilled to be part of uh, Impact Junkie to begin with. Super excited to be part of the, the, first, uh, the first podcast. Thank you again. All that said, again, I'm CW3 retired Mason McDonald, entrepreneur and in Impact Junkie. Now that I've told you the end, let's see how I got here. Uh, started with a nuclear family. Mom and dad, dad, dad was an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur. Mom was a teacher. Been in the Peace Corps and, you know, done beautiful things around the world with some beautiful people. 
and taught me a good work ethic and you know civic responsibility. And then 1994, 1994 is my next big chapter. I kind of left my parents' home. I got married, my father died, and I had a child in that order that year. Wow, big year. And yeah, yeah, so, so 1994 was a big year for me. So a couple years after that, uh, I, I had what alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity and realized that uh, as an adult man, I needed to do something that was gonna provide for my family. So uh, I joined the military because being a carpenter wasn't, wasn't gonna cover all of my uh, high impact son's you know, medical expenses. So I uh, joined the military. You know, started off as uh, an 11 Bravo infantryman carrying a squad automatic weapon. And I went to scouts and I went to long range reconnaissance surveillance and did some fantastic things with some brilliant people. And then I transitioned over to aviation after uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. I did 12 years in aviation and that taught me some lessons. I'm going to circle back around all this again. The next chapter is Bobby, my first and late wife. We were married in 1994 again, and she died in 2012. The following chapter is Bethany. Beth is my current wife. She was a gold star wife. She and I met uh, in Italy years and years and years ago. Uh, she and my late wife worked together. Her husband and I were friends. They're friends, so he and I naturally have to be friends. He asked me to be his daughter's godfather and all kinds of stuff. Well, he was killed in Afghanistan in 2012, uh, shortly before my wife killed herself. And then uh, Beth and I got together. I think you just tried to drop something there that I want to just make sure you underscore. You just said my wife killed herself. I did. I did. Yeah. She, uh, she was sick for a long time. She had a couple surgeries in Italy that didn't go terribly well, started affecting, you know, toxins weren't being filtered by her liver. Anyway, long story short, really the bottom line is she got tired of being sick and she took her own life in uh, December of 2012. So that's the slightly blown up version. Um, well, I think that that's, and we'll come back to this in a bit, but that's such a big part of your big, hairy, audacious problem, how it connects to the suicide rate in the military and veteran community, which we'll come back to. It absolutely does. And it, and not uh, just the service members, but also the family, how it affects them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I'm going to, I'll circle back around to because each one of these chapters and I, you know, I don't know if this is impact junkie core concept or if it's, you know, and I'm just now waking up to it or if it's just something that I stumbled on, but I realized at a certain point that as I'm writing out these chapters of my life, you know, for the impact junkie course that, you know, you go back to the do more with what you've been given mantra uh, from IJ and each of those chapters, success or tragedy gave me a thing. It gave me a tool that I could use down the road. When you say do more with what you've been given, it's not necessarily, you know, your, your, your trust fund or, you know, God given athletic capability or whatever, you know, a lot of what we've been given, we earn throughout our life, I think. And that gives you your core in your toolbox from with you, from which you can, you know, both pull. the pain, both the pain and the joy. Exactly right. You know, and some and and pain's a better teacher. Let's be honest. You know, joy is absolute. You know, like that's the goal, right? We all want to be happy, um, but nothing teaches better than pain, and that's that's something the the uh, military does very well. <laughs> it gives you a lot of opportunities for growth, Philip. <laughs> yeah. uh, so well, let's come back to that, but let's finish your okay. chapters. I think we kind of yeah. three more chapters. So I, I married Bethany and she had a different outlook. She was happy. She wanted to be happy and she was going to chase her happiness, which, you know, you hear people say, but she actually did it, you know, and she rejoiced in her foibles. There are a bunch of things that I thought was, were really beautiful. And I wanted to be like that. 
we don't want to give away too much of her story because we want to make sure we dig into that properly. But when you met her, she was married. Yes. She and my wife worked together in Italy because they're friends naturally. Yeah. You know, everybody that's married knows when your wife has a friend, her husband is now going to become your friend. Sometimes so, that works out, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> right. But and Trent then, was a good dude. Uh, Trent, you know, Trent and I liked each other real well. It, so much so that uh, he asked me to be his daughter's godfather. My stepdaughter, my goddaughter is now my, my daughter daughter. And then Trent ended up being shot, fatally wounded in uh, Afghanistan. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, he, he received a, a small arms wound to the head, which was unrecoverable. So, so we'll dig, we're going to, we definitely want to have a show where we talk with uh, Beth more about her experience from that widow's perspective. But the beauty of that story and the chapters of, of both of you coming together is just amazing. It goes back to a term that Impact Junkie has taught me called the God nod. Like there's, there's no way to identify how Beth and I, two relatively young, we were in our thirties, widows who were widowed four months apart, happened to, you know, find each other and find solace and a way forward together. In my limited uh, intelligence, I, there's no better way to, to describe that other than divine intervention. I so. would agree with that. So Bobby, your first wife, you are still active military and you actually returned back from one of your tours. Is that correct? And she had been suffering and took yeah. her out. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd done three or four deployments married to Bobby. That's something that I guess that's one of those things that you don't think about unless you've been in the military is, yeah, you know, I, I have this one year deployment to Iraq, say. Well, and then I come home. What people don't understand that haven't been in the military is that time at home isn't at home. You know, you come back and you have a couple of weeks of leave to figure out who your family is again, meet your new child in a lot of cases, go out and visit your dog's grave that passed while you were gone. There's all of these reintegration things that happen. And then you get thrown right back into a training cycle. You know, I happened to go to Colorado to do high altitude training for helicopters. And I came back from that event on December 12th, December 13th, uh, went back to work. And December 14th, I came home. It was on a Friday. I came home to find her in the bathroom, on the bathroom floor. So when we talk about the suicide rate and, and we'll come back, but the, the 22 is the statistic, right? And it, yeah. of, of active, deck. active and retired military every day. That's right. That take their own life. And that statistic does not include family members. No, no, that is, that is just soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marine. And I'll even give a shout out to the Coast Guard. What up? Uh, <laughs> Great. Thanks, Coast Guard. But yeah, one of those inner, inner, inner uh, service there's so many stories we don't have time to dig into, but I've had the benefit of spending a lot of time with you traveling and being together at Fort Bragg and in Guatemala, which we'll talk about. But you have some amazing stories and I love being around when we've done these military meetups. I just love listening to the stories. I think it's somewhat therapeutic for them. Uh, some are a little more hesitant to open up, of course, but there is a beauty of sharing. Do you agree with that? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there, there is a catharsis in that, especially, you know, not, not to be exclusive of anybody, but especially when you're in the company of other people that have, you know, chewed that dirt, as we say, it's a small world military and it's quantifiably small when you only have 0.5% of the population serving in any given point, any given moment. Yeah. And that's, 
which is what's what the actual number is for us in the U.S. So you've shared some stories of being in the the holes with the guys, you know, walking on top of you in the dark. You've talked about. I think two would be really good to share is the nine eleven. I think is really interesting because you had the option to actually get out of the military. Is that correct? Was it right before nine eleven? And then you were on the runway. You've told me that story, right? Of, yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, are we going? Are we not going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We well, we were actually again deployed. I I was home in two thousand one. By home, I mean when I was living in Vicenza. I was training in Hohenfels, Germany. Destroyed my collarbone, so I was not on. I was in long range reconnaissance surveillance detachment, seventy uh, fourth infantry detachment, Lurs in Vicenza, Italy, when this happened. And I destroyed my shoulder. I hadn't destroyed my shoulder. A guy named Josh Van Stewart destroyed my shoulder doing combatives. Josh yeah. <laughs> destroyed my shoulder. So I was recovering in operations. And part of operations duties was to uh, man the, the arms room. So I was in the arms room when 9-11 happened. And my wife called me. My late wife called me and went, hey, somebody just you know, crashed an airplane to the, the World Trade Center. And I was like, nope, nope, that didn't happen you're looking at footage from 10 years ago when they tried to blow it up and whatever. She's like, Hey dummy, I'm watching the news right now. Like you might want to go investigate that. So I did. And I went back down to the main operation cell, saw the second plane hit. And then, uh, we loaded up. We we're actually getting ready to go straight from there, uh, in Hohenfels, Germany. And we, we get the stand down order, uh, because they ended up sending probably the 82nd, let's be honest. <laughs> I think another amazing story, well, there's so many amazing stories to share. We talked a lot about the, you know, face-to-face or the really personal things that you deal with as a soldier, hand-to-hand, going in through doors, not knowing what's on the other side, or through walls, not knowing what's on the other side, to, yeah, to uh, the helicopters and, and, and share, if you could share just briefly the kind of like the, your Purple Heart moment there. So we were doing convoy security. Uh, outside of Baghdad in 2010, October 30th, 2010, we're doing uh, security for a patrol uh, outside of Baghdad. And we got kind of a 911, hey man, somebody just shot up a checkpoint directly south of you. Uh, it was about a five minute flight. So we broke station with the, the patrol we were with and went down. As happens in this community, you get a call sign frequency and a grid and you figure out all the details in route. So on the way there, we realized that uh, the person that had shot up the checkpoint was actually an Iraqi soldier, and he'd killed three of his fellow soldiers at the checkpoint, and they were trying to corral him. So long story short, we found him. It was an Iraqi soldier that sort of had a snap, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Or he may have potentially been, you know, dual role, wasn't necessarily pro-Iraq democracy, maybe. But for whatever reason, you know, he, uh, he became the bad guy that day. So we found him, uh, offered to reduce the target, as we say. Um, and for whatever reason, they wanted him captured alive. Really, the short version is I spent way too long flying way too slow and way too low over a target. Uh, I was about 50 feet above him when he rolled over and unloaded. We were doing left orbits around this guy so my left seater could keep uh, his eye and his carbine trained on the dude. I flew just a little bit too close to over the top of him. He rolled over and unloaded small arms fire on my helicopter. It caught my rocket pod on fire, completely exploded everything on the left side of the cockpit. Brett Pafford, I'm sorry. I apologize, bro. This is the the guy on on that side. 
Yeah, he was on the left side. I was flying. So uh, I owe Brett Pafford an apology still today because he was covered in blood, not mine, his. You know, so the cockpit shot up and stuff's exploding inside the cockpit. And, you know, I'm getting all the low oil quantity, high rotor RPM, like, you know, like every possible warning, caution, or advisory that could come up was displayed on my screen. Break over, and I tell my left seater that I'm going to crash over there. Uh, to which he doesn't re- respond and I see the blood all, all over his legs and I'm thinking so wait wait you just calmly say I'm going to crash over there yeah yeah mm-hmm. I'm like hey if, if, if you're gonna crash that's where it's gonna be it seems relatively flat away from the target we're going there I was taught early on by a guy named Simon Buck that uh, you don't ever sound excited on the radio because whatever the helicopter pilot sounds like is going to be amplified on the ground you will calmly say into the radio uh, Roger took fire Due to an excessive number of cautions, warnings, advisories, I'm going to uh, make a precautionary landing here on the desert floor. I just can't and, believe it. I, that, like, the level of training and discipline to have that like, level of calm in that chaos is just unbelievable. It's certainly unnatural. <laughs> <laughs> Everything inside of you screaming, but your training and your, the practice, all the, the routine. The of the iterations of, oh, you've just been shot down. What do you do now? So you do, so you have this, Crash landing. Yep. Yep. I, I'm on my way down and I tell my wingman all those same things. Hey, low oil temp, high, you know, or high temp, low pressure, low quantity, engine out, engine failure, FedEx failure, all these things. And he's like, Roger, understand we're RTB. We're returned to base. We're going home. No, dummy. I'm crashing in the desert. About this time, I noticed my left seater waving his hands. And so he's not dead. Good news. Glad to see you're still out there, buddy. His legs, he'd, he'd gotten a whole bunch of damage to his, to his lower half. But when we got on the ground, just the rocket pods on fire, I couldn't jettison it because the sw- the switch the bundle had been all shot through and stuff. And uh, so I hit the ground. I see, I tell Brent to get out, to clear the aircraft because the rocket pods on his side. So I'm like, you know, get away from the helicopter. I do a quick emergency shutdown and grab my M4 and start heading back because I'm going to go finish my mission. Not entirely, probably the best intellectual move I've ever made in my life. <laughs> You know, you just, grab your, you just grab your gun and say like, okay, I got to go get this guy. Yeah. Well, now I'm a little angry too. Let's be honest. You know, it, it, it got, it got personal. And you had to, you had, you had to have holes in you. No, I had, I had shrapnel in the right side of my face, but other than that was pretty much unmolested that, you know, they, later on the, the CSI guys with all the strings that run through the helicopter to show you bullet trajectories and paths. And they pointed out the three bullet holes that should have killed me. Uh, but he wow. was like, yeah, were you outside the helicopter at some point? I was like, well, yeah, I had to. I had to look out the door to see where I was going to crash at one point. He was like, and that's what saved your life. So, wow. So, they, so the bullet holes through, so this is not armor pierced, like, like, uh, ar- like, no, the, no, the, the, it's very no, thin. The, the helicopter is very thin. Yeah. The bullets go right through. And so they, right. they actually lined out the tape of the trajectory of the bullets to show right where your head was. When that's you right. Leaned out. Yeah. yeah. After, after that moment. Yeah, crash investigation, they, they run strings through everything, just like a CSI crime scene, right? You know, like you've seen on TV. Um, they run strings through everything so they can figure out, you know, what was the round that actually did this, you know, what... So they, the, they can, your they buddy can actually survived that? Yeah, he was pretty screwed up from about mid-thigh down. He was good to go and... So one of the, that's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing. And I think one of the things that's interesting with the military, so we talk a lot about... Love, listen, learn. And if you want to understand how to help someone, you need to go in, understand the culture, understand how they're thinking, how they're feeling, like empathy is, it's all about starting with empathy. And I think in the military community, there's this 
one of the interesting aspects, of course, you have your own language, you have a lot of acronyms, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And yeah. a lot of things people don't understand. But one of the things that I think is so interesting is the humor. And I think it's sort of this defense, I don't know if it's defense, but it's sort of this buildup of seeing death every day and being faced with the reality of death every day. I think there's this interesting humor that sort of develops. And just even you telling that story to me versus telling that story to other military, there would be all signs of humor and back and forth and joking. And Mason has, was hired uh, recently by the Greek government to go train because they bought a bunch of these helicopters from the US and you actually were brought in to go in and train them on how to fly these helicopters. So you're you like the best of the best, but you can get it. So, so you're like the best of the best, but it was sort of, a, I was trying to get into the, to the humor here. And I said, we'll try to keep the helicopter from crashing this time or something like that. Because I think you joked about your purple heart in sort of a degrading way of like, oh, I just got like, I got shot down. Like I messed up or something. Yeah, we, call like it the enemy, we call it the enemy marksmanship award. <laughs> uh, the, the purple heart is the enemy marksmanship badge. But the, there is such a, a, an interesting humor. And you've talked about some of your friends with prosthetics and sort of like hiding his legs on top of the refrigerator. Yeah. Uh, which I think it boggles the mind to like a civilian that doesn't, is very like a, would be so scared to even talk about it or think about it and sort of the reality of, of how you and Beth and the community sort of has this interesting humor that has a way of sort of getting through in, in spite of what is the most unthinkable situations, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's why, you know, people are, you know, they, they get very surprised that I talk about suicide openly the way I do, you know, and even my own consideration of it. But, but that's the thing is, if we don't talk about it, then there's this stigma attached to it and we can't fix it until you address a problem and until you identify it and put it out there for everyone to see, we can't do anything to address it. Right. I think you should have all of the uncomfortable conversations. You know, you should talk to your wife about, Hey, what happens if I die tomorrow? What, what are you going to do? You know, how are you going to feed the kids? Where are you going to bury my body? You know I mean? Stuff like that. You know, so you, you, you have to have those conversations for your own well being. And we do it with a level of humor in the military that, you know, I mean, it can make people uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm still adjusting. I'm coming around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's good. It, you know, it's healthy. It's healthy as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. So let's, let's go back to your chapters. And, and yeah. I know we kind of, we kind of, there's so many interesting stories. I just want to, I could talk all day and all night and dig into these stories and thank you for your service. I can't say it enough. And thank you for what you do and what you have done. And thank I'm excited you. to talk now kind of leading up to, Again, what you said, I love how you said it. It's not what, what, you know, those experiences, but it's what are you going to do with it? And that's sort of a yeah. mantra. Do more with what you've been given, both those painful experiences and the good experiences. And so you're hearing in Mason's story, the connection of suicide and these near-death experiences and all of this. Now let's sort of move forward in the story a little bit. You talked about Bobby and the suicide and then Beth and remarrying. And then let's kind of talk about some of your next chapters. Uh, Building up to your BHAP here, your big, hairy, audacious problem that you've that's identified. It. So my chapter after Bethany would be transition because leaving the army, becoming a civilian again was more of a life changing thing than I had ever anticipated it would be. And then making impact is my final chapter. To go back and, and like I say, again, it's one of those things that just kind of occurred to me that every one of those chapters gave me a different thing, good or bad, you know, the nuclear family. My dad was really big about, you know, hey, we, you have to have a work ethic. If you're put in charge of cleaning toilets, they're going to be the cleanest toilets. The 1994, um, when 
you know, I got married, had a child, my, my dad died all in that year. Um, that really taught me what priorities look like as an adult man, what my priorities should be. Welcome to the Department of Defense. You know, the Army taught me so many things. The one thing from Ranger School that I learned uh, that I recount a lot is I learned how far I was willing to go and how far I could go after my, my body was done being willing. Like, wow. I learned more about who Mason McDonald was than about patrol base operations or setting in an L-shaped ambush or anything like that, right? And then that camaraderie, that love of that love of the guy in the hole next to you and, you know, the fact that, hey, you know, if you see a, you know, if somebody throws a grenade in your foxhole, be the first guy to jump on it so your buddy can get out. That's a thing that, you know, my, my first squad leader, Chris Hutchins, he used to throw pine cones like when we were doing nothing else. He'd throw pine cones and be like, frag out. But he called it the Medal of Honor drill to Ooh. see who would jump on it first. Very healthy experiments. <clears throat> so then I went from infantry to aviation and seemed like a great idea. You know, a lot of job opportunities after you get out of the Army. Um, not a whole lot of guys are paying. You know, IBM never offered to give me a job to sleep in a hole outside of Apple's headquarters and report what they were doing. So, you know, I needed a marketable skill, went aviation. And the first thing I learned about aviation is that that brotherhood was noticeably absent, at least in the unit I was in at that, that particular moment in time. You know, the troop motto essentially was my tense up, which meant, hey, <laughs> I'm good. Mm. You're on your own, chief. The next chapter was Bobby. And Bobby's death really changed my attitude toward suicide. After Kurt Cobain killed himself in the 90s, I never listened to Nirvana again. I was disgusted by that dude. You have not only your own kid, but there are a million kids in the U.S. that look up to you and idolize you, you know, and you're just going to, you know, take your own life. I self-edited for you, Philip. Just there, I self-edited for you. So he, he took his own life, and I was just like, that's disgusting. Like, you have a bigger responsibility than that. And then seeing the amount of pain that my wife was in when she finally decided to take her own life, yeah, I was disappointed, but it, it brought it closer to home. It, this isn't something that just happens celebrities or, you know, depressed people that, you know, need psych psychiatric help and whatever, you know, I mean, this is, this is a thing, you know, this happens to people. Sometimes it happens closer than you want. So it changed my perspective on suicide. It moved into my chapter with Bethany and, you know, our, our kids, Gwen and Eli. And, you know, she was philanthropic. She's altruistic. You know, those of you that know, know my wife know that she's very, you know, like she will go way out of her way to, you know, they're making COVID masks right now for whenever this is 10 years down the road, COVID was a thing. So they've been making masks uh, to donate to the local hospital and stuff. And it's okay to be happy. That's the other thing that she taught me was, you know, there's a certain point where I felt guilty about being happy after my wife's suicide, right? How long do I, do I stay on that train and eat what we call grief cookies, you know, they're delicious and everybody wants to give them to you and, and oh, I'm really sorry and whatever. Oh, grief cookies are delicious, but they're not good for you. Grief cookies are not healthy. Get off the grief cookies. Grief wow. cookies. Grief wow. cookies. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a term I coined or Beth maybe, but it was, you know, we, we noticed that it was so easy to be a widow because, or a widower in my, my, my case, because everybody, you know, all you had to do is, you know, if you're sixth in line, you're like, don't you all know my wife just died? And everybody steps out of line. Grief cookies. Mm. More grief cookies. <laughs> Delicious. But they're not good for you. They're not healthy. None of that, that keeps you in this cycle of stress. 
right? Like that's your identity now. Your identity isn't Mason McDonald. Your identity is the widower of Bobby McDonald. I don't want to live the rest of my life being the something to somebody else's thing. You know, like I want to be my own, my own dude and change the world on my own. So we went through transition. I, I, I left the army and so talk about that. Talk about the transition process from the army just a little bit for maybe those who aren't familiar and yeah. what, what that's like. When you get ready to leave the army, uh, regardless of the duration you're in, um, you can do a three-year tour or do 20 plus years like I did. Regardless, we're all stuck in the same room at the end of that tour of duty, right? We're stuck in a room where they give you all these classes, you know, and you've got to fill out a financial form like, hey, how are you going to pay for that Cobra GT that you bought at E3 pay? You know, once you get out of the army, are you still going to be making your payments and all that stuff? So they give you all these classes and fill out all these forms and, you know, how are you going to provide for your family and all that good stuff? But it's tailored to those younger guys. It's not retired to, a, it's not catered to a guy that retired after 20 years and has been making all of his payments on his cars the whole time and has never been negligent in his mortgage or anything like, you know I mean? So a lot of guys get, and, and oh, by the way, you're six months out from getting out of the army. So not a whole lot of guys are focused on the benefit that I get from this class. It's one more class. The army has thousands of them, Marine Corps, Air Force, I'm sure, sharp training, you know, sexual harassment and prevention and uh, you know, I mean, valid, valid EO, you know, all of these things are, are valid training, but there's just so much of it that you get numb to it after a certain point. So I think a lot of guys in transition, they go through that. Well, I'd gotten out of the army, went through all those classes. I was going to start my own business and it didn't pan out. But what did happen was I, because of all of the psych and all that stuff, they put me on a bunch of meds and apparently I had PTSD. Uh, well, when I was wearing that top that you're wearing right now, it wasn't a problem, right? I, I didn't have PTSD. I had health, healthy coping mechanisms for surviving downrange. But then I get out of the army and I'm, I'm not wearing multicam anymore. And now all of a sudden I've got PTSD and it's a bad thing. And, and I'm on all of these medications for stuff that I, okay, the doctor told me to take these meds. So I did. And I, I got tremendously depressed to the point of suicidal ideation. Maybe it'd just be better off without me. Maybe everybody would. And this is how far out from retirement or this is during the process or after? Yeah, this is like um, immediately following retirement. In yeah, talk to that mental, well, what is that mental journey like? Like what's going on inside of your head after having sort of the focus of mission and the clarity and the training and the routine and then the transition, especially after 20 years? Yeah, well, you know, I was institutionalized. I drank I drank the Kool-Aid, as we say. I drank the Kool-Aid, man. I was full in, institutional. And on Tuesday, I was wearing that blouse, right? I was seated. They call this a blouse. They call this a blouse, which I have a hard time with. That's the military term for these. Is a blouse. <laughs> yeah, blouse it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> you know, hey. maybe that's to make you fight. Yeah, who knows? That transition was so hard on me because I'm, you know, I'm sure it's similar for guys that only spend three years in, but for the guys that do twenty plus, my entire identity was wrapped up in that uniform, man instructor pilot, standardization instructor pilot, instrument examiner, master gunner for 117 Cavalry at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I had all the cool badges and, you know, Ranger tabs and combat infantry badge, combat action badge, and airborne wings with a mustard stain for a combat jump. And, you know, I had all the cool guy bells and whistles. And then on Wednesday, I took that uniform off and now I'm just Mason McDonald. And I wasn't prepared 
for the fact that I, I was just Mason. I wasn't chief anymore. How do you change your identity in 24 hours? Who are you now? What do you have to be proud of now? Are my best years behind me? Well, what's the point in going on? But the level at which you have to operate is so demanding and so all-encompassing that when you get out in the army and you take that big breath, it's like, well, I spent 20 years just trying to live to this point. So after all of that, where am I? How do, how do, what am I proud of now? So coming out of that, you felt that, that loss of purpose, that loss of mission. And then you, the response was throw some meds at you, essentially. Yeah, Is that- that's exactly right. Yeah, we're just going to dump as many meds until you're just so numb that you don't care anymore. And for a lot of guys, they, you know, it takes a long time. Like that everybody, not everybody, a lot of guys will talk openly about, oh, effects hurt? Yeah, I tried that. I was going to put a pistol in my mouth the following day. This one, Valium, oh man, I couldn't take Valium. You know, like, like we all know all these drugs. We've all been given this huge cocktail and it's not until hopefully, you know, you get the right combo and you haven't killed yourself that now just a steady numb for the rest of your life. I wasn't ready to do that. I'm still a relatively young, despite the gray, relatively healthy, despite my 100% disability. Um, <laughs> despite breaking your back on a parachute jump, yes. Yeah, you know, I mean, but all that stuff. Um, besides all of that, I still have a lot left to do and accomplish. And there was nobody saying, hey, all right, good job on that first 20. Now, next 20 is coming up. What's the plan, chief? I didn't know I was going to be a business owner. That didn't work out. So what do I do now? I tried to go back to school. That ended terribly. Um, Just, you know, as I'm trying to figure out what it is I'm doing, I got super involved in my community. I thought, well, let me at least try to apply some of my military stuff to get involved in my community and make, you know, Southern Pines, North Carolina, a better place to live. And then my wife was going up to this thing in uh, Virginia, innovation and like, entrepreneurship and innovation for women, innovation in tech, I think is what it was. And awesome. Go do that. You know? And she came back and she's like, we're going to Guatemala. I was like, awesome. That group I was with, they're called impact junkie. They're going to Guatemala. We're going to Guatemala. Do what you want, darling. I've been married long enough, not to the same woman, but long enough to know that when she has a mission in mind, you just nod. Yes, ma'am. Would you like me to get the luggage now? Okay. I wasn't originally going to go. I had, you know, other things uh, that I was trying to accomplish here at home, but she wanted me to go. So we compromised and I ended up in Guatemala. You ended up in Guatemala. Ended up in Guatemala. What a line. What a line. But I mean, that, but that's where my head was. My, my head was like, oh, okay, now I'm, I'm going to go do this thing. Okay. Numb do it all, right? Now I'd gotten, all, I'd, I'd quit all my meds. I was like, none of that's working out for me. I was still on one or two, but all of the, the serious like inner turmoil was kind of behind me, I think. And we ended up in Guatemala. You know, I'm walking down the street with these eight other people. You know, every time we go into a building, I'm counting them into the building. And every time they leave the building, I'm counting them out of the building. And at one point, Philip's like, what, what is this? What, what, every time I walk out of a building, you're, you're waving at me. Hi, Philip, I'm counting people out of the building. Nine people went in. I want to make sure nine people come out. It's just one of those things that's so deeply ingrained. I didn't even realize. At this point, you had been out, what, less than a year, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd been out for like nine months at this point, I think. And I found myself on a mission with a team deployed, which were all terms with which I was familiar, but only in the army sense, right? So it, I had this epiphany in Guatemala and I, you know, Philip and I were talking one night, you and I were talking and I was like, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we had military guys come down? You know, I don't know if you know this, but 
you know, there are organizations that those guys have to know a language and they operate in these different places and whatever. And if we had one of those guys that was retired to come down and help out, wouldn't that be cool? And Philip, and you were like, that would be cool. So it started me down this path of, man, I'm on an airplane and, and Beth still picks on me about it. She's like, she's like, yeah, you're, you're just like, oh, it's, it's, it's so beautiful. And, and, oh, wasn't that lady's story just beautiful? And, and, oh, you know, when we prayed in the village with that, you know, with, with the mayor and his daughter and all that, she's like, it was a night and day change from the plane ride down. This is you talking. This is, yeah, this is me. You know, she still likes to pick on me about it, but it was, it was an absolutely beautiful thing that had happened to me over the course of four days in Guatemala where I was doing good things. I had a purpose, you know, purpose, direction, motivation are the three things that are key to solve any mission, right? I had that purpose. I knew where I was going and I was motivated to do so because everybody around me had the same mentality of like, let's go see what they're doing over there. And it was absolutely, it was life-changing, brother. It, it, it absolutely changed the way I operate. I remember, so on our, that was one, our first trip to Guatemala together. And I remember being at the University Francisco Marquin, which we love, did a guest lecture. That was the first morning. We had met that night before, briefly. Yeah. And then the next morning, we did a little overview of Impact Junkie. And we talked about the 7.7 billion people waiting for you to step up. And what big problems are you going to solve? It just felt like something happened to you that day. I do, I do remember feeling that. It did to me too. We're, one, being so well-received, you know, Guatemala, what beautiful people, right? You know, and just being super well-received and everybody was on board and it's like, hey, even if it doesn't work, let's give it a try. You know, I was in this kind of place where anything's possible. You know, like we all, we all hear that, but I was actually watching people respond to it. Like, throw it out. Maybe it's, maybe it's the worst idea you've ever had. Throw it out. Because maybe yeah. Giancarlo can be like, you know, man, I heard of that and let's flex and do this different thing. Like it was just such a positive experience. It changed me, man. Like that, it, it that's the beauty, of, the beauty of the Impact Junkies. It's so diverse and the, the community is so rich and I'm just blown away every time. Just like what you did on that trip and the idea, you know, that just sparked in you. And again, going around the X, right? Of you love people, go places, change lives. It's rooted in you. It's rooted in your story. The unique, I mean, unbelievable chapters that you have in the story of your life. Very painful days, very difficult days. That mixed with, mixed with the beautiful, the, the painful days and the beautiful days mixed together that make up the chapters of your life. And this is what I'm meant to solve. Identifying that BHAP in your own story and then identifying a problem and empathizing with others. And you've gone through this beautiful journey and then how yeah. to actually launch something. One of the things, and to go places, I love on our next trip to Guatemala, one of the things that was so funny when you came back with us and we were at one of the universities or meeting somewhere with the government or something, you were introducing yourself and you would kind of like, I'm Mason and I've done some things. And do you remember this? And I said, Mason, after the meeting, I came up to you and I said, Mason, we've got to work on your pitch. <laughs> because you have such an amazing story and an amazing background and there's something unique that you have to help so many others i think that's the core of impact junkies it's like wow once once that spark ignites you're never the same absolutely and i'm a testament to it brother and then to see you earlier this month deliver your pitch at the pitch your heart out event 
which if you haven't seen it for the members who the welcome video, when you go into the member portal, you got to click on and see Mason's pitch that he gave about impact junkie military. So talk a little bit about that, the idea, and it's still a kernel and it's growing already, but talk a little bit about that. Coming out of Guatemala, it was like, you know, what is my BHAB? What is my big, hairy, audacious problem? And it, it was kind of laid out for me, probably by Philip. You know, my wife committed suicide and that changed how I looked at it. I'd been on the verge, like I'd at least been considering it. It wasn't something so foreign that I was just offended by the entire concept anymore. It was a viable option. And 22 of my fellow military members kill themselves every day. How do we fix that? But I'm coming back from Guatemala and I'm so relieved. You know, I feel like I'm taking deeper breaths and, you know, I love the people that I'm, that I'm helping and I love the people that I'm doing it with. So I've got love people. I got love people down, go places, just did it. Check that block, change lives. How do I do that? You know, and it comes back to that pain is the best educator. And my own personal pain taught me some, some things about myself that I don't know I was necessarily ready to learn. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I did nonetheless, speaking openly about that stuff, we can curb uh, veteran suicide. And that's, and, and that's really my problem. It, it goes hand in hand with my wife. And, and again, felt, like you said a little while ago, brother, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about her, her situation in a while, but, but uh, you know, being a gold star wife, uh, she has a different perspective on things than is ingrained in the community uh, that I think is a lot healthier. And so our, our BHAPs go hand in hand. We're what a power pack combo. I mean, military widow, military widower, you guys are amazing. We're about to wrap up, but I'd love for you to share the analogy of the whole as these military members are coming through this and sort of your idea with Impact Junkie Military, one of the things we talk about in Impact Junkie is how can we solve multiple market problems like triple black belt ninjas, triple black belt entrepreneurs, right? How can we solve, yeah, we're solving a problem here in this country or in this community or in my backyard. And how can we also connect, uh, I don't know, like this issue with military suicide and this tragedy that's happening. And can we connect those together, which is I think very interesting. And how can we help people out of this Share that, that story of the whole that I've heard you talk about. That's a great way to sort of give people a visual of what's happening here. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think it's a, I think it's a good metaphor if for no other reason that it does give you a good visual. The story basically is a soldier finds himself in this hole of depression. Didn't go to sleep there, but one day wakes up and realizes, man, this is all bad. I'm in this hole. I don't necessarily know my way out, but he's got his unit commander screaming at him. Hey, Joe, get out of the hole. Can't get out of the hole, boss. I tried, can't get out of the hole. So the commander's mad at him. Commander and first sergeant are talking about what a, what a reject this soldier is. Man, you know, like whatever, you know, maybe we should refer him to this organization or that organization. And pretty soon you've got medics that are just throwing pills down the hole. Well, he can't get out of the hole. Let's just make him comfortable in the hole. So you're just stuck here and there's no way out. People around you, your family is even like, you know, they start thinking, why, do, why does he prefer the hole to family time? We're all happy and, you know, we're trying to do stuff together, but you know, he just wants to sit in the garage or wherever. He, and to them, it looks like he's self-isolating and, and he's putting himself in the hole. He's keeping himself there. And it's not until another soldier jumps down in that hole and says, hey, brother, follow me. And the guy, guy in the hole says, hey, dummy, there's no way out of here. And the second soldier looks at him and says, there is a way. I've been here before. I know the way out. Follow me. There is no other way out than having a ranger buddy that's willing to hold your hand but help you come back from that dark place. 
uh, 22 of us kill ourselves a day. Call your buddy. Wow. Thank you so much, Mason, for sharing. And it's so beautiful to watch your journey. I'm just grateful and honored for your service and uh, love that line. So there I was in Guatemala, which is a great trend. It's <laughs> such a great transition from, I was, you know, feeling depressed and they're throwing pills at me. And then I, so then I end up in Guatemala, right? It's such a great plot twist and a great God nod, which I know you said as well. It's sort of like, there has to be a divine intervention, something beyond just human control guiding this. It, but it is beautiful to watch unfold. And I'm so grateful for you. And um, if you want to get involved in Impact Junkie Military, you can email military at impactjunkie.co and get involved. We have an amazing community of amazing American heroes. And we're also working with other militaries around the world. So if you, we're just warming up. So if you want to get more involved, please reach out. If you know someone who you think should be a part of this, send an email military at impactjunkie.co. Thank you again, Mason. And uh, I think we're going to open it up for some questions here at the end, uh, maybe kind of the after party. If you are not already in the Impact Junkie course, I encourage you all to sign up Go to impactjunkie.co and you get to take the class with amazing people like Mason who are working on their big, hairy, audacious problems that they're trying to solve. And we're, we, we work through the chapters of our life together. And then we turn that into figuring out what that problem is and we understand the problem. And then we don't just stop there. We work together on how to launch this, turn this idea into action and actually start solving problems for real people. We do it together. And then how to change lives, as Mason was just talking about, how to scale this movement and how to grow it, build coalition and build it into something even bigger and connect those multiple market problems. And the beautiful, most beautiful thing is you get to do it together with our online community. You stay connected. You get to share uh, and, and work through this together because starting something new is, can be lonely, right, Mason? Just Absolutely. by itself. But especially when you're, doing, you're going after these BHAPs and trying to solve something, just as you said, we need someone to come sort of in that hole and say, hey, this way, let's do it together. And so with Impact Junkies, you get this amazing community of people who are crazy enough to think we actually can change the world together. So you end up with I, a bunch of people in the hole. <laughs> like, <laughs> a bunch of people in the us. hole. <laughs> come with us, man. We found, we found a way. We know a guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. so yeah, brother, I'm absolutely honored to be on this trip with you. It's, it's an amazing thing that you ignited. And I'm, I'm excited to see what the next chapters bring, man.